Well, we are in our Easter series, What Are You Looking For?, and the title for this morning's sermon is, How Important is Truth to You? We are in John chapter 18, John 18, verses 28 to 40. I watched something on Netflix the other day called The Push. In England, Darren Brown and his team, they decide to conduct a a social experiment. Their question is the following. It's a sobering question. Can a person be manipulated through social pressure to commit murder? Can a person that normally would not conduct such a horrific act through social pressure be encouraged to push a person off the roof of a building? How far will people go under pressure? That's the question. In order to conduct their social experiment, they need a a credible but fabricated story about 70 actors, a very nice venue. Brown sets the stage for a charity auction to support a youth nonprofit called The Push, which actually doesn't exist. And four very unsuspecting individuals are drawn into the story to see whether they will succumb to social pressure. By involving the stories in a series of less than honest acts. And so along the way, their commitment to truth is is compromised. They become more and more enmeshed in the story, more and more committed to the outcomes of the story. By the end of the evening, of the four, how many do you think push a person off the roof? Three. Sobering. Hopefully they're not your friends. (laughs) They do it to protect their own interests. They're so enmeshed in the story that they protect their own interests and the interests of the group. You see, social pressure can be used to maintain order. It can be a good force, but it also can encourage people to commit horrific acts. People will do things because of the authority of a person, the authority of a social group, the authority of an ideology in their lives. So, of course, we need to ask ourselves the question, what actually determines our actions? What guides us? Is it truth? Is it an interest? Is it an agenda? Is it our commitment to God? What guides us? In our passage today, in the context, Jesus has become this polarizing figure because he has claimed to be the resurrection and the life. He has raised Lazarus from the dead. The Jewish authorities, they consider him to be dangerous, dangerous to their own interests as religious leaders in Judea, dangerous to the whole Jewish people. They want Jesus removed from the sin, from, from the scene. They take Jesus to the Roman authorities to have him arrested. Judas has conveniently betrayed Jesus. Peter, because of social pressure, he capitulates. He denies Jesus three times and the rooster crows. So as we read the text today, I would like you to ask yourself, who are you in the story? On that day when Jesus was arrested and taken to Pilate, would you and I have been like Peter? Would we find ourselves in the crowd or among the Jewish authorities? Do we identify with Pilate? Would we be like Jesus? What truly guides us? John chapter 18, verse 28. John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, 
What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Main point of the message. When we face social pressure, in order to choose Jesus instead of the kingdom of this world, we must be secure in our God-given identity, know our God-given purpose, and be committed to God's truth. Let me repeat that. When we face social pressure, in order to choose Jesus instead of the kingdom of this world, we must be secure in our God-given identity. Know our God-given purpose and be committed to God's truth. John's account of the Roman trial is the, the longest in the Gospels. The narrative, narrative, it oscillates between inside conversations and outside conversations. It begins with an outside conversation between Jesus and the Roman authorities. In the early morning, the Jewish authorities of the Sanhedrin, under the leadership of Caiaphas, the high priest, they lead Jesus to the governor's headquarters, the realm of Roman military rule. Pilate, the governor of Judea, he was given the governorship by the emperor Tiberius. He has been the governor since AD 26. So he is familiar with rule in Judea. He has faced clashes with the Jewish authorities a number of times. Something very ironic happens in Romans, in sorry, Pilate's headquarters. The Jewish authorities, they don't want to enter the headquarters of the Roman ruler because they don't want to be defiled. If they enter according to ceremonial law, they will not be able to participate in the rest of the Passover. So they don't want to go in. But they take the true Passover lamb to the Roman headquarters so that he might be tried and defiled by entering the headquarters and defiled by crucifixion. They can't put a person to death, but they will use a Gentile to achieve their ends. They would have said the whole time, we're doing God's will. We're just doing what's good for the people of God. At the same time, as they do this, Jesus' prophetic words are being fulfilled. 
Do we see these kinds of, of ironies in our day? What was happening at that time, do we see it today? Well, here's an example from the left. I'll, I'll give you an example from the left of the political spectrum and one from the right, just to include everyone here. I'm glad you didn't find that funny. <laughs> so, a number of weeks ago, I quoted Margaret Wendt from the Globe and Mail, and she wrote this. Why are feminists and other liberals so indifferent to and in denial about the malign effects of porn? She answers, the answer is that feminists and other liberals would rather be caught dead than be caught on the same side as Christians, conservatives, and other social reactionaries, end of quote. So we would have to ask the question, where do the commitments of the left lie? What truly guides them? Here's an example from the right. A New York Times article uh, last week spoke of predominantly white churches in the United States of America. They're on the right side of the political spectrum. They refuse to address rampant social injustice while they support what they consider to be a conservative evangelical agenda. The article argues that people are supported not because of their character, but because the people supported will work in favor of their interests. And while these predominantly white churches do this, what's being observed is that minority members, people of other ethnicities, are slowly leaving their churches. And so again, the question needs to be asked, where do commitments truly lie? What guides the behavior of God's people? Pilate begins the judicial proceedings with this question. What accusation do you bring against this man? The Jews are probably surprised by Pilate's question because he, after all, had already sent a detachment of troops to arrest Jesus. They probably expect a very, very quick verdict. After all, their accusation has political overtones. Jesus is a dangerous person in Judea. He endangers Rome. Pilate commands them, take him yourselves and judge him by your law. He's probably just belittling the Jewish authorities, just letting them know who truly has the power and the authority. He's humiliating them. The Jews admit, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And that was true. Capital jurisdiction had been taken from them. Capital power had been taken from them in AD 6. And this was one of the things, one of the attributes of government that the Romans held on to most tenaciously because those that held capital power at the end of the day had power and authority. Now, the Jewish leaders probably wanted Jesus to be crucified because the Jewish people would never follow someone that had died that shameful death. Crucifixion was horrifying to the Jews. Why? Because their scripture said, Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So if Jesus was crucified, the people probably wouldn't follow. Now, ironically, Jesus had long ago chosen just such a way to gather the world to himself. John chapter 12 verse 32 and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So even in the midst of political manipulation, political intrigue, and this should be for our comfort, even in this kind of a setting, this kind of a context, you see the hand of God. 
Jesus will die as predicted. God is actually on the throne. And for the first readers of the Gospel of John, this was important. The first readers of the Gospel of John were probably from Ephesus. John writes the Gospel near the end of the first century. So Ephesus is this important political center. The imperial cult is strong. The emperor is worshipped. It's a pluralistic society. But Christians, they find themselves on the margins. They are not finding favor in society. They are under pressure to conform. And they need to know whether Jesus is just some radical messianic figure crucified by Rome and rejected by the Jews, or is he truly much, much more? The trial before Pilate moves inside. So it's been outside between Jewish authorities and Pilate. Now it moves inside. The conversation is now between Pilate and Jesus. Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? That was the charge leveled by the Sanhedrin. Pilate is probably incredulous. Jesus doesn't look like a threat to Rome. Jesus turns the conversation around. He asks a question. Pilate, do you want to know the answer to that question? Are you truly curious or are you just asking the question because you're expected to ask it because of the pressure of the Romans and the Jews? Why do you pose the question? You see, as Jesus poses the question, he becomes the interrogator and Pilate is now, in a sense, on trial. He must make a decision. Will he in this moment consider Jesus or will he just do the expected? His answer is contemptuous. Am I a Jew? Your own people betrayed you. Why? What have you done? And in response to Pilate's question, Jesus makes a profound statement. Verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. In the Gospel of John, the word kingdom, it appears here in chapter 18 and also in chapter 3. What happens in chapter 3? It's another Passover scene, and a man by the name of Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, he goes to find Jesus and asks questions about the kingdom, and Jesus tells him that his kingdom is from above, and if you want to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born of the Spirit. You see, the nature of Jesus' kingdom is other. The fact that he did not marshal his disciples to fight, the fact that he stifled the inclination of Peter to defend him, the fact that he was arrested so easily demonstrate that his kingdom is of a different order. Jesus has talked about the way of his kingdom in previous chapters. You see, his identity as king is rooted in the Father, John chapter 10, he says, I and the Father are one. Jesus, the king, he washes his disciples' feet. He's come to serve. What a different kingdom. Jesus, the king, he's like a vine. He invites the disciples into his life to be united with him. Those that follow the king, they are given life through the true word of the king. They obey it. They love one another. You see, the way of Jesus, it is so different from the kingdom of Rome and the kingdom of the Jews. So different from any human way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Pilate must choose. 
Can Pilate separate himself from his world, from the social expectations of the Jews, the expectations of Rome? Can he separate himself just for a moment and consider Jesus? Here's a critical point. How can Jesus stand in that moment? Jesus is under tremendous pressure. How can he stand? Jesus can stand alone because he knows where he's grounded. He knows where he's rooted. He's rooted in God the Father. He knows that his Father in heaven is the essence, the source of all true honor. And if there's any honor that he should seek, it's the honor of the Father. If there's anyone that he wants to glorify, it is, it is the Father. That's the relationship that guides him, that grounds him. And for us to avoid social compliance when we're under pressure, our core identity must be rooted in God the Father, not the social group. No matter which social group we belong to, our core identity must be rooted in God the Father, not the social group. You know, in his trial of Jesus, Pilate despises the Jews, yet he capitulates to their demands. We know from history that Pilate had this really tenuous relationship with Rome, yet he tries to secure their favor, their honor. He's controlled by the social groups that he actually despises. He's unable to separate himself. He's weak. He's vacillating. To decide for Jesus, he has to separate himself from those groups that give him an identity in society, that allow him to be governor. It's all very fleeting, all very insecure, but he holds on to it tenaciously. And we must all choose between Jesus and the identities of the kingdom of this world. We do it in the workplace, we do it at home, we do it on the university campus. We do it within the cultural group that we find ourselves. We often need to do it in the church as well. For us to avoid social compliance, our core identity must be rooted in God the Father, not the social group. The inside conversation between Pilate and Jesus, it continues, verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this person, purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Just an interesting note. These verses are found in the oldest fragment of the New Testament. It's dated to about 110 A.D., found in Egypt. It contains, it, it preserves the core reason for Jesus' coming. Verses 37 and 38. To bear witness to the truth. John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. And Jesus embodied truth. John chapter 8 verses 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. If you abide in my word you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free including freedom from social pressure. He revealed the truth through everything that he did, everything that he said. It was the truth. How does he present himself to Thomas? John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
If ever there was a summary of the gospel, it's that statement. It speaks to the great aspirations of humankind to know the way to life, to know the truth, to have life now and forevermore. Now, Jesus' statement, it is exclusive. He doesn't say, I am a way. I'm blazing a trail here that you might follow. He says, I am the way. He doesn't say, I am another truth. He says, I am the truth, the supreme revelation of reality. God's reality defined in me. All things find their purpose. You want life? You want a reason to be? Then come to me. For us to avoid social compliance, our core purpose must be to know the truth and witness to the truth, not to secure social acceptance. Our core purpose must be to know the truth, to witness to the truth, and not to secure social acceptance. The mission statement of this church, to know Jesus Christ personally and to carry on his ministry. There it is. Sometime later, following the death and resurrection of Jesus, Peter would understand the way of the kingdom. This Peter that caved to social pressure when Jesus was arrested, this Peter that denied Jesus three times, after Pentecost, he stands before the Jewish authorities and he makes this bold claim, Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Conviction. He knows Jesus. He knows the Jesus that not only died but rose from the dead and is exalted at the right hand of the Father. He lives with a sense of purpose, of conviction. I was invited to speak on John 18 at a church in Winnipeg some years ago. It was the weekend before Easter. And so I preached the message, and after the message, some people came forward. A young man came forward, and he says, My name is Amr. I'm an Iranian. I'm a Muslim. And uh, I think that you offended Islam during your message. And I said, well, that wasn't my intention. Explain to me how I offended Islam. And so we had a bit of conversation about the, the message. And after a number of minutes, I said to him, I said, Amr, okay, you're a Muslim, I'm a Christian. Both you and I, we need to ask ourselves whether we will accept the Jesus of John 18. And he looked at me and he said, fair enough walked away. Another man came up. He said, I'm an Iranian. I'm a Muslim. My name is Mehdi. And I thought, am I in Winnipeg? <laughs> My name is Mehdi. And uh, I'm a Muslim, but I want to become a Christian. What are the steps? And so I quickly began to explain the gospel to him, which steps he would need to take. And after a few minutes of conversation, he said, actually, I have a really important commitment in about 15 minutes. I've got to go. I'll see you next week. And I said, I'm actually not going to be here next week, but I know somebody that can help you. And God is so gracious, the way that he orchestrates things. And so between services, I'd had about half an hour of conversation with a math professor from the University of Manitoba that had these Iranians as students. The next weekend, Mehdi came back to church. In the meantime, the math professor had talked to an, uh, an Iranian pastor who was starting a ministry in that church. So Mehdi 
gets to talk to someone that speaks his own language. Why was he in church in the first place? The reason that he was going to church was because he had an Asian landlord. And the Asian landlord had loved him and witnessed to the truth, had introduced him to the church. And there in worship, he experienced a peace that he had never experienced before. He didn't understand it. He didn't even understand what was being sung. But he experienced it in a peace that he had never experienced in a mosque. And so he just kept coming back. And there he was on that Sunday morning when I was preaching and he was ready to decide, didn't have enough time to pray to receive Jesus that morning, but the following weekend he was there again. And a Farsi-speaking pastor was there that could explain the gospel to him again, and he prayed to receive Jesus in English and in Farsi. And the math professor gave him his first New Testament. A number of months later, he had to go back to Iran. But he went back ready to face the social pressure, knowing he would probably face opposition because he had heard the voice of Jesus. Jesus says in verse 37, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now in the conversation between Jesus and Pilate, Pilate is being invited to consider Jesus. Does he want to live in the truth? He's palpably uncomfortable, and so he responds with this very cynical question. What is truth? Maybe he's seen too much hypocrisy in Rome, too much hypocrisy in Jerusalem. We don't know. One thing that is true, I believe, is that many in Canada would resonate with this question today. We live in such a tolerant, pluralistic society. What is truth anyways? Oxford Dictionary's word of the year in 2016 was post-truth. And what it means is that truth belongs to another time. For our time, truth is unimportant. It's irrelevant. The conversation today is shaped by emotion. It's shaped by interests. We message and re-message each other. We just live with so much fake news that who knows the truth anyways? In that kind of a world where people think that truth is relative or that no one can actually know what truth is, social compliance becomes very, very easy. And that's why it's so important for us as followers of Jesus to know where we are grounded. Where do we stand? What do we believe to be true? If we live in a post-truth world, we're just guided by what's expedient to us, for us. What interests us? The final verses in our passage reveal a remarkable irony. The conversation moves outside again. Now Pilate is having conversation with the Jewish authorities and the crowds. End of verse 38. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. If Pilate had been committed to the truth, he would have released Jesus and dismissed the Jewish authorities. He had the power to do that. Crowds are crying, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. Who is Barabbas? Barabbas is a robber. That word means terrorist, revolutionary. He had participated in a bloody rebellion. Barabbas had actually committed murder. He was a zealot. The zealots were the ISIS of that day. 
They were committed to resisting Rome. They were willing to risk their own lives. They were willing to take the lives of others. So look at the irony. The crowds call for the release of a man who has committed murder in his struggle against Rome, and they condemn a man falsely accused of being a danger to Rome who would give his life for Romans and Jews. What does the name Barabbas mean? The name Barabbas means son of the father. So the crowds give life to a murderer whose name means son of the father, and they condemn to death the true son of the father. Does it matter who was freed that day? Does it matter who died? One of the most famous authors in the world today, Paulo Coelho, he's an esoteric, he says it doesn't matter. Could have been Barabbas, it could have been Jesus, could have been anyone. Does it matter? You see, if you're not committed to the truth, if there are no real facts, if everything is actually relative... If we just define our own truth, there's no irony, there's no scandal, it really doesn't matter. But when we say no to the way, the truth, and the life, we pay a really heavy price. Because we give ourselves to the way of robbers like Barabbas. We choose the way of the one who came to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So we need to choose. What was Jesus' ultimate answer to Pilate's question, what is truth? His ultimate answer was going to the cross, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. Nothing more needs to be said. The truth was revealed at Calvary. God loves us. And for us to avoid social compliance, our core truth must be defined by Jesus, not by our social environment. If we are on the seas, riding the seas of our day, a post-truth world where everything is relative, we will be carried to our own destruction. You know, in this life, you probably won't push someone off a building. I really hope you don't. You probably won't need to make that choice. But because of social pressure, in a moment, you may throw yourself off the building. Of course, ultimately, if we don't decide for Jesus in this life, we do throw ourselves to our own destruction. But as disciples of Jesus, we make these choices every day. Will we choose Jesus or the kingdom of this world? The good news is, Jesus paid the price for our redemption. Jesus bought back people like Barabbas. Jesus bought back people like Pilate. Jesus bought back people like you and me, sinners. He bought us back to free us from social pressure. To free us from the weight of social pressure. So that we could walk in freedom. He revealed truth to us, the truth so that we could know our identity, that we could actually be in an intimate relationship with the Father who loves us, 
Restore us to our original purpose, to have life and to have it abundantly. So how important is truth to you and me? It means everything. Truth means everything. And may we, brothers and sisters, choose the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. So maybe you're here today and you're not even sure why. Maybe you came with a friend and you've never decided for Jesus. Please hear the invitation of Jesus to receive life, to receive forgiveness of sin, to receive the gift of eternal life. Don't let this moment pass without surrendering your life to Jesus. And you will discover what it truly means to live. Talk to your friend who brought you. You can come forward and talk to me or go to the Welcome Center. Don't let the moment pass. Jesus gave his life for you that you might have life. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that follow you. And we thank you again that while we were yet sinners, you, you died for us. Out of love, you gave your life for us, Jesus. We thank you for revealing the Father to us. Oh God, may our identity be grounded in our relationship with you. May we know, Lord, how steadfast your love is, how faithful you are, how present you are in our lives each moment. May our core purpose be to know you, Jesus, to witness to you today, this Easter season, every day of our lives. Can we see beyond, Lord, the the acceptance of those around us. Oh God, enable us to stand in our day. May our core truth be defined by you. May we not be swept away by the relativism of the discourse around us. May we stand in you, Jesus. Thank you that you're with us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you have sent the spirit of truth to abide in us. And so thank you that you are present to guide us and counsel us. May we live for your glory this week. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.